1: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
2: He said that forever, that his wish would be to go off on a walk and sit down under a tree and pass away in peace. That would be his dream ending.
1: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio satellites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week.
3: Whilst the earth is beautiful, just being able to transcend it physically, I think is a metaphor for one's hopes for spiritual transcendence.
1: As mere human beings in this brief life, we're sandwiched between two great wonders, the earth and the sky. One is solid and steady, providing the grounding of almost everything we do, and one is expansive and largely unknown a great mystery, the stuff of dreams and philosophers. Today on ReSound, we explore a little of both, gravity and anti-gravity, forest and flight, featuring the search for a very special tree.
4: Is that, is that a beech tree?
1: An old man's gravitational pull. There is something otherworldly about him. And of course, a magic carpet.
5: Flying carpets were woven and sold till the late 13th century.
1: Stay tuned. Most human flight requires great big machinery and loads of technology. Planes, rockets, helicopters, or at the very least, a hang glider and many hours of training. So the idea of just stepping into the air and floating away may be pure, unencumbered bliss. But it's also virtually impossible, which is why it's also the stuff of fantasy, dreams, and computer-generated images. Or is it? Producer Kathy Fitzgerald wondered, And when Kathy Fitzgerald wonders, something unusual and beautiful is about to commence. Here is the Magic Carpet Flight Manual. The world of the Arabian Nights
6: may be over 700 years old, but I'm still beguiled. Caves full of treasure, genies lurking in lamps, and bazaars crammed with exotic
5: temptations. Each shop was fronted by an awning which kept off the glare and made a grateful shade. Anon, he saw a broker offering for sale a carpet at 30,000 gold pieces. The prince beckoned to him. What special virtue hath it that thou demand such a sum? The broker answered. Its properties are singular and marvellous. And of course, the magic
6: carpet... The rug that looks run-of-the-mill, but turns out to be anything but.
5: Whosoever sits on this carpet and wills in thought to be taken up and set down upon another site will, in the twinkling of an eye, be borne thither, be that place near hand or distant and difficult to reach. I'm used to being disappointed when it comes to magic
6: carpets. The rug in the hall's never shown any sign of taking off. But that doesn't stop me wishing. I'm waiting for someone to tip the world up, like a snow globe, so I can fly away into all that blue.
5: The Magic Carpet Flight Manual Chapter One Take Off When
6: I was researching my PhD, I spent a long time in the library, reading old books about something called natural magic. The writers were often scientists, interested by wondrous phenomena that seemed magical, but actually had natural causes. And then one day I'm web-dreaming, dodging phone calls from work, and I find myself on the website of a museum in Iran.
5: Factual evidence for what was a long-standing myth has been found by a French explorer, Henri Bach in Iran has discovered scrolls of well-preserved manuscripts in underground cellars of an old assassin castle at Alamut near the Caspian Sea. Written in the early 13th century by a Jewish scholar, Isaac bin Sherira, these manuscripts shed light on the real story behind the flying carpet of the Arabian Nights.
6: It didn't seem likely, but when I checked on other websites, there was the same story.
5: Following their translation from Persian into English, a conference has been called at the London School of Oriental and African Studies. The manuscripts are now being carbon-dated in Trieste. Blimey! I
6: did some more sleuthing. There was no trace of the mysterious Henri back, but I did find the author of the article. Azar Abadie turns out to be an engineer by qualification, an odd choice for a historian of antiquarian scrolls. He lives in Australia but grew up in Pakistan.
7: The first books that I was able to read in Urdu in my mother tongue were the Arabian night stories and then other romance epic from the Persian and the Indian, and they all featured flying carpets. Flying carpets were woven and sold till the late 13th century.
5: The clientele for them was chiefly at the fringe of respectable society. Young dissidents, political refugees, hermits and agnostics went airborne for their escapades.
6: Azar had written that in his article, but what was his evidence?
7: According to this manuscript, flying carpets were invented around the time of King Solomon, and the state of the art, if you like, was during the 12th century, the 11th century of the Islamic Empire around Baghdad.
5: The Great Library of Alexandria kept a stock of flying carpets for its readers, They could borrow these carpets in exchange for their slippers to glide back and
7: forth, up and down, among the shelves. The history, if you like, just unfolded itself and it became apparent to me that this had to be the history of the flying carpet because it couldn't have been any other way.
6: So were magic carpets real, once upon a time?
5: Don't be daft. Chapter 2. Losing Altitude.
6: I, I read it on the net and uh, I think you have me for about a page. I was just sitting there thinking, really? <laughs> 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 really?
7: <laughs> I was googling myself, as, as you do sometimes, and then I found that my story was on the internet and it wasn't actually attributed to me. They just printed it with everything else, so they had historical fact mixed up with this story so I was um, I, I was quite shocked to see that because I had never intended the story to be a fraud and even now, even last month I got an email from someone in, in Iran saying that he's very interested in the story and he can't find it this, this is true, he, this guy said I'm very interested in reference such and such could you please tell me where I can find that book or that reference and I said I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it doesn't exist. It's not real. And he said, but it is real. It was printed in a newspaper. For me, the joy
6: was sitting on that cusp. You know, deep down, there was a sceptical bit that was saying, this is just a story. But then, you know, it almost gave you permission just to daydream a little bit and think, what if? And there was something nice about having both those feelings at the same time.
7: I remember when I, and I was telling my, I was living in Karachi at that time, and I told my one of my uncles that I had written this story of uh, flying carpets. And he said, this is the most ridiculous and absurd thing I've heard. I'm very disappointed in you. You know, he was half joking. But he said, look, you've studied engineering, you've studied maths, you know all about the laws of physics, and here you've written this absurd story. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> the sort of reactions I've got on this story have been... From one extreme to the other, they just keep on coming.
6: Did you have any qualms about playing into the West's habit of romanticising the East?
7: If I define myself as someone from the East, I think we tend to romanticise the East ourselves, just like you would romanticise the past. I think there are lots of nice things to romanticise about. The Golden Age of Islam, the Empire of Baghdad and the, the Caliphate there before the Mongols came in from the East.
6: Why do you think we still fantasise about flight um, now that we know how to do it?
7: To me, it's the desire to be anywhere but here.
6: Carpet fact turns out to be carpet fiction. But if as our story is just a story, where did the myth of the magic carpet come from?
5: Chapter 3. Finding your carpet.
6: Carpet salesmen I've met tell me kings in palaces walked on rugs made from the finest wool, taken from the necks of baby lambs. In the desert, nomads wove their hopes for a better life into their carpets. Flowers, plants, even chickens make their way into the patterns. King Solomon is said to have had the first flying carpet. It was a big one, 60 miles square, big enough for his entire army, cavalry and cooks. But when I think of flying carpets, I think of the Arabian Nights, which is odd, because there's hardly any mention of them in the stories at all. Not even Aladdin has a magic carpet, though when he finally gets his princess, he does make the most of her flying bed. It's all down to Hollywood, and the West's tendency to romanticise, and often belittle, the East, what the academic Edward Said called Orientalism. I spoke to Professor Marina
8: Warner, She's writing a book about magic and the Arabian Nights. The magic carpet has become the emblem of Orientalist fantasy because it's been much more associated with languor, with private passions. I mean, the end of *The Thief of Baghdad* when the thief and the princess uh, fly off on the carpet. It's an expression of their love against the full moon. And also the gorgeousness, the embroideries, the the richness, luxury, all all these aspects have been associated with Orientalism. But the chief Orientalist side of it is that if you look at any list of aviation experiments before the actual um, realization of flight, I mean, you'll see endless Leonardo in his bird or whatever, but you won't see the carpet itself because it's not seen to be part of the imagination of flight before flight. And that's very orientalist. I mean, in the sense that Edward Said meant that it's a dismissal and a demeaning of the Eastern traditions because it's just thought of as absurd and poetic. Whereas you could easily see that Leonardo was being absurd and poetic, he was probably trying to imitate an angel as well. Did we need to invent
6: the magic carpet then in order
8: to learn how to fly? (laughs) Very frequently, in a fairy tale, or even in a myth, even earlier than fairy tales, you will find experiences imagined that have since become possible. So, for example, in Beauty and the Beast, she's given a magic mirror, and in her magic mirror, she can see her family, and that's when she realises her father is ill and near his death. But, of course, this is like Skype or something. I mean... (laughs) You I know, mean, Skype has, has realized, on television, I mean, we see things from the other side of the world. And I think it's not to say there's a kind of cause and effect. It's not as simple as that. It isn't, oh, people imagined it, so it happened. It's that without the desire, without that that fantasy, and all the emotion that goes into that fantasy, to see your dying father on the other side of the world, that was necessary, because it is through imagination's needs that we actually arrive at the questions that then are solved by the scientists. I think imagination precedes empirical inquiry and experiment.
5: Chapter four, the science of flight. Certain passages in the manuscript describe the workings of a flying carpet. Unfortunately, much of the vocabulary is indecipherable. What is understood is that a flying carpet was spun on a loom, like an ordinary carpet. The difference lay in the dyeing process. The artisans had discovered a certain clay, which, when superheated at temperatures that exceeded the seventh ring of hell, acquired anti-magnetic properties. Now the earth itself is a magnet. So when the carpet was ready, it pulled itself away from the ground.
6: What chance is there that modern scientists will fulfil our desire to soar? Professor Ulf Leonhardt is working on quantum levitation at the University of St Andrews.
9: It's not, in principle, not that difficult to levitate things. All you have to do is to make the forces that typically attract things, uh, make them repelling. And you do this by unusual materials. So you replace a piece of glass by... An unusual piece of glass where light is refracted the other way around, and then it would repel things. so that's that's what you do. So what was uh, sticky first then becomes repulsive, and if it's repelled, it starts to float.
6: so if we ever managed it, the object would be it would appear as if it was floating on nothing.
9: That's right, it would float on nothing. Of course, things like this exist. I mean, there are even trains floating in, on magnetic fields. But not even that. I mean, not even on magnetic fields. they are just literally floating on absolutely nothing. And that—that that is possible in principle.
6: But a long way off.
9: A long way off, I'm afraid so.
6: Isn't the pleasure of magical objects that they, they're outside natural laws? So aren't, aren't you taking the fun away?
9: Well... I would turn it the other way around. So the magical optics are really not outside of the natural laws. They are very much inside. appear outside of the ordinary. And so it's not outside, it's inside. It's very much inside. It's, It's not putting the magic away, but finding new forms of pure and applied magic.
6: What are you working on at the moment?
9: Ideas to make artificial event horizons, black holes in the laboratory. I'm working on ideas for invisibility devices. What I like is, is imaginative research, so that is inspired by questions my children ask. This is what I like because I feel this is natural. This is more what comes out naturally and what is in all of us.
5: CHAPTER FIVE
7: FLIGHT I think it might be a bit wobbly. Once you were on a carpet and it it was in air, you still had to hold on to it. Pictures you see of people flying on on these flying carpets, they're usually sitting cross-legged, but I imagine they have to be holding on tight. I reckon it would be quite hair-raising.
2: The International Space Station, or ISS, Developed and operated by 15 countries, is a truly spectacular project reflecting humankind's dream about space. It's also home to Kibo.
6: When he was a boy, Koichi Wakata watched the lunar landing on TV. Since then, he's become one of Japan's most experienced astronauts, veteran of three space flights, and more to the point, a recent ride on a magic carpet.
10: In the space station, in the microgravity environment, it's uh, very easy to just float and uh, you know, f- fly from one place to another. But I've never tried to fly with some carpet or some sort of cloth underneath myself. Finding the right material, um, right stiffness, and uh, using Velcro, those are the keys to, to be able to fly the carpet.
6: So you actually, you Velcroed your feet on, onto the carpet. Right. Did that feel like cheating?
10: Uh, oh, cheating! cheating. Yes, yes actually, <laughs> yes, yeah, sometimes you have to <laughs> do what you have to do. And uh, you're right. I tried many ways, but I, uh, until I found out that uh, it's really easy if I use a Velcro attached to the uh, the partition cloth, as well as uh, putting the the other part of the Velcro on my sock, it really made it easy for me to to look as if I was really flying on a carpet.
6: Did it feel a bit silly?
10: That's a good question. Um, there are <laughs> a lot of things that uh, that looks kind of uh, seller like uh, you doing a high five or doing uh, arm wrestling. But at the same time, if you look at it, uh, to get the attention from the youngsters, I think uh, these experiments are very, uh, very useful and very powerful. <laughs>
2: We're living in the space age. JAXA is constantly spurring its technological and scientific edge to better challenge the unknown for the sake of humankind and Earth.
7: As much as I want it to be real, I think it's enough for it to be real in our minds and in our imagination. And often if we take things out of our imagination and put them in physical reality, then we are let down. So I, would be dis- I, I wouldn't like to see it. I wouldn't like to see a real flying carpet. Would you?
3: My carpet's not magic. It's cotton and very... Functional.
6: Sarah Joseph is editor of the Muslim lifestyle magazine ML. She converted to Islam as a teenager. I asked her about her prayer mat. My
3: prayer mat stays in my bedroom, just by the window, so I can look out onto the garden. And at night, I can see the stars. That height, you have it in the beautiful steeples of churches, and you have it in the wonderful minarets of the Muslim world. Whilst the earth is beautiful, just being able to transcend it physically, I think is a metaphor for one's hopes for spiritual transcendence. It creates a sacred space. The object is merely an outward sign of inward grace. I have a friend who's a jazz musician and sometimes plays, he used to say, it's that place of golden light. I know exactly where that place is, because I've been there infrequently, unfortunately, on my prayer mat.
5: Chapter 6,
8: Pushing the Envelope The sort of enchantment that I respond to, and I think the stories, in a way, embody, stories like the Arabian Nights embody, is the kind of magic that is wonder accepting are humbly accepting that there are things beyond our understanding but not beyond our responsiveness so we can respond by representing it by symbolizing through pictures stories music but retaining the you know what in religious terms is called the ineffable re- retaining the idea that there are things that not only lie beyond our understanding But that whose beauty depends, in a sense, on lying beyond our understanding.
10: I think, in a sense, space station or spaceship is really like a flying carpet to take us over there to the place of unknowns. And um, to be able to fly freely is uh, what we always desire, whether uh, on a spaceship or uh, on a flying carpet.
5: Genkis Khan laid waste most of the cities in Central Asia. Their inhabitants were massacred, their treasures plundered. In their loot, the Mongols found flying carpets. Genkis Khan burned them all. All except one. It's said that the great Khan, on his deathbed, ordered the most beautiful carpet to be buried with him. So, when his generals laid him to rest, they left by his side, his carriage to the heavens, a blood-red drug with a border of fiery yellow and a black rose in its centre, the dowry of a Jewess to her Muslim prince.
8: It's, it's uplift, it's uh, joy, not feeling heavy, you know, feeling light not feeling time weighing on you. I mean, it's, it, it sort of works out many of the images that are associated with happiness. Do you, have, do
6: you ever have flying dreams?
10: When I was a kid, I often had that dream. Somehow if I just uh, run like wind, and then if I jump, I can fly, <laughs> I could fly. I had that kind of dream quite a lot when I was a kid. But these days, I, somehow I don't. It's kind of strange. Maybe I'm used to flying on a supersonic jet and also flying in space, uh, uh, you know, uh, 28,000 kilometers per hour, that kind of fast speed flying in space. Maybe I'm too used to that. But hopefully that kind of dream will come back to me. Maybe I would like to dream of flying to Mars.
6: In the end, the only real magic carpet is the one in my daydreams. And maybe that's how it should be. I'm yearning for a way to fly. Inside.
1: That was The Magic Carpet Flight Manual a Rocket House production by Kathy Fitzgerald and Matt Thompson for the BBC World Service.
6: I always think there's a moment in somebody's eyes when you're interviewing somebody. There's a moment when you ask a question and they've understood that you actually really care. And, you know, that's when you start getting the really interesting stuff. Um, You know, the ordinary daytime chaos and distraction sort of starts to just fall away and you can both be just there and in the moment
1: to hear a favorite resound devoted entirely to kathy's radio work including an interview with her check out our website thirdcoastfestival.org as always you can send your comments questions rants and raves to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org coming up after the break a radiomaker finds herself lost in the woods and discovers a charismatic gnome-like man with an almost gravitational pull.
11: Head things are always dualistic, uh, but in, in the heart everything is, is, is one.
1: Stay with us. Listen up! The 2016 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge is officially underway. Short Talks is the one time each year that we encourage anyone and everyone, seasoned radio makers and newbies alike, to create a great little radio story and send it our way. This year, we're teaming up with Manual Cinema, a film-inspired shadow puppet collective for a challenge inspired by, you guessed it, the moving image. To learn the rules and see the four gorgeous mini-movies Manual Cinema created just for us, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And just so you know, the deadline is May 17th, so get cracking.
12: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is
1: Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Here at ReSound, we listen to every podcast and radio show we can get our ears on. And that is no small task. Then we bring you the best stories we discover worldwide. This week, we found two graceful stories that guide us to opposite spheres. The sky and the earth. Now to the Earth, where we meet an old man named Wolfgang, a longtime fixture around the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan. You could regularly find Wolfgang in a library armchair, reading books about philosophy, or tending his community garden plot. Now ailing and living alone, Wolfgang has attracted a devoted circle of much younger friends and caretakers. Producer Stephanie Rowden found herself unexpectedly Drawn into his orbit. And in this audio essay, she retraces her path from documentarian to caretaker. Here is Gravitation and Other Graces.
4: There's a story I want to tell you. It has to do with an old tree. A small pouch of ashes, and the mystery of gravity. Did you know you can get lost in the woods looking for the end of a story? Are you guys tree people? You Do you, uh, well, I'm looking for a beech tree. Uh, you haven't seen an unusual beech tree around here
5: unusual as in what
4: the branches kind of reach out and they over and they go down to the ground
5: i've seen that out here
4: i have the small green pouch of ashes with me again
5: oh i know which one i know which one she's talking about it's the one that if you keep going down this little trail to the top of the ridge it's up to up yeah. there? It's yeah it's 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 it's, yeah, it's maybe really a quarter mile up. L- let me just draw it for you over here. And this is north.
4: He's drawing a map into the ground with a stick.
5: So Once you come up around here. Except I'm terrible uh, with you. maps. And right over here is your tree that I think it's the tree that you're looking for.
4: river. It was early one spring afternoon and we were sitting around their kitchen table and I was just wondering aloud about what to work on next. A small project that would start to pull me back into the stream of things. It's like that after a long illness. Nan told me I should interview her friend Wolfgang because Wolfgang started to garden in very old age and he likes to talk about the feel of earth moving through his hands. It seemed like a simple enough idea to make a short audio portrait about an old gardener, but in the beginning, I really didn't understand
11: very much. Yeah, I mean, maybe we have to go back to some of the older forms of relationships, including some aspects of paganism. Did he say paganism? because, you know, the, the earth was sacred. Most scientists say, well... Uh, Cucumber you, or radish.
4: And he really wasn't doing all that much gardening.
11: You, 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 you decide for me. As a matter of fact, I was reading a book on that the heart is really the basic organ of, of humanity. Not the head, because head things are always dualistic. Uh, but in, in the heart, everything is, is, is one. Peas... Or cucumber. Uh. He's always telling me that um, he wants me to see a fairy. He can recognize people as fairies.
12: He almost is an imaginary person. Old. Like, I don't feel that when you see him that he looks like he even belongs in this time period.
1: He reminds me of a gnome.
4: There is something otherworldly about him. He's small and thin, about the size of a nine- or ten-year-old. He wears a long, rumpled raincoat and wool cap. I've seen him in the library, in one of the stuffed chairs, snoozing or nibbling on a Hershey bar, with an encyclopedia of philosophy open on his lap. The year I was sick, when I had enough energy, I would sit and look out the window. That state of being, it's like you're on another small planet, far off in the distance. When I meet up with Wolfgang in the garden, though, I'm starting to come back to life. I have eyebrows again.
11: Wolfgang, what's that growing in the corner there? This? I don't know. Is that the same as this?
4: In the middle of the garden, there's an arbor where we usually sit on Wednesday evenings.
11: This is our decadence.
4: Wolfgang wants to talk about the decadence of consumer culture and speculate about the return of the divine feminine. He's been reading books about the healing power of trees and life after death. I learned that he was a freelance illustrator when he was younger, that he grew up in Berlin as an only child, and that he and his parents managed to get themselves out of Nazi Germany and then resettle in Detroit. But the thing I'm actually most interested in is the orbit around Wolfgang
12: uh lenny and nan zeke i'm in there
2: tara marion dale and myself i think that's the core
4: and this surprises me because in all the years i've seen him around town i just assumed he was totally alone we get him oranges apples that's jesse prunes his friends take him shopping to doctor's appointments. Hummus, peanut butter. For walks in the woods. Meyer bread. I'm not sure it would have occurred to me to take care of him.
11: And sometimes last will ask for Fig
4: Newtons. I've just come from a year where I was taken care of a lot by friends and family, some of whom even moved in for a while. I don't even know how I would have managed without
12: them. But he has no one, no blood relations. He doesn't have a child or a sister. There's no one. We're his de facto family.
2: I kind of think like like that we're it, the, the, the people that are with him now, that we have to learn how to pace ourselves with him and discern between what's an emergency and what's just loneliness.
4: I do know it. Even when you have a lot of people who love you and are looking after you like I had, sometimes it's just you, a solitary planet. It's one of those icy gray February mornings When Wolfgang and I visit the conservatory of the botanical gardens...
11: It's beautiful. Yeah.
4: Inside, it's warm and lush and green. It's the first time I hear Wolfgang talk about his
11: tree. This one there, then, is that a beach?
5: It is not a beach. We do have beach, but they are all in the cold frames for Uh the winter.
11: Yeah. -hmm. You see, have some very interesting beaches in one of the parks. Uh, uh, I think I've seen it one time, but it looks uh, uh, almost like the, the branches go back into the, the soil. And,
5: uh, oh, where well, the branches have been trained. Yeah. Uh, I know exactly. Yeah. I don't know the name yeah. of the park myself, but
7: I know the huh? trees. I uh, dare.
11: I want to be very... <laughs>
7: There what? I say,
11: in the woods, I like to be buried there.
7: You'd like to be buried in the woods? Well,
11: yeah, I, well, I mean, I, wa- I want to go to the woods and feel good and then I sit down and go. And just go. Or, or if, if I can, do my ashes, spread over the woods. And right. It's very, very unorthodox.
13: It is a little unorthodox, <laughs> Yeah.
11: Uh,
2: He said that forever, that his wish would be to go off on a walk and sit down under a tree and pass away in peace.
12: And I think we all really would love it to end up exactly how he imagines it.
2: That would be his dream ending.
4: It's early spring when Wolfgang and I pull into a city park where he thinks he remembers seeing the beech tree. I've pictured an enchanted woodland forest, like a scene from one of Wolfgang's pen and ink drawings—the kind of place where gnomes and wood sprites would live. But the park is actually about fifty yards from the expressway. What do you see here,
12: Wolfgang?
11: It always looks like a beach, but uh, oh.
12: What
4: about that? Do you see that arch there?
11: Yeah.
4: Is that is that a beech tree? No. Should we go down here a little bit? Wolfgang's closest friends call themselves the Wolf Pack. It's a loose group of about six or eight that shifts as people come and go. Lenny. Nan and Tara are steady in the center. There's always one summer potluck in the garden.
12: You've got an old pair of glasses on today. That's Nan. These are reading glasses. She's trying to
4: figure out why Wolfgang's not wearing the right glasses.
12: You're not supposed to walk around in reading glasses.
4: (laughs) Nan takes care of paying Wolfgang's bills and cooks him pureed vegetarian soup.
1: I think I really need to get those glasses and get them shortened
2: his glasses so they're not slipping off his face. I think that's what it is. That's
4: Lenny. When Lenny was a sophomore in college, he took a class called the Psychology of Aging. He was assigned to visit an elderly person, which was Wolfgang. That was almost 30 years ago. Now Lenny and his wife Nan are Wolfgang's emergency medical contacts.
12: Short quotes in the front. Tara
4: asked me to take a photograph. The group gathers around Wolfgang flanked by giant stalks of broccoli and sunflowers.
9: You got us all? Uh Uh-huh.
4: This circle around Wolfgang, what explains all this generous caregiving for this one old man for so many years?
12: I think we probably must have known each other in a past life and were revisiting and continuing Maybe it was just the fact that there was this cute little old man, like, standing in my doorway. Maybe it was karma.
4: His friends say they're getting a lot back from Wolfgang, too. Nan admits it feels good to be adored, even when she forgets to call Wolfgang.
12: No matter what I do, he just
4: thinks I'm amazing. For Lenny, it goes back to when he first met Wolfgang as a young man. Lenny was struggling with a profound shift in his life and starting to move away from the expectations his family had set out for him.
2: You could even describe it as a path from the mind to the heart, in a way.
4: Wolfgang listened and encouraged Lenny.
2: It's like finding someone pulling out a a thorn from your foot. You just feel so indebted to that person.
4: Start to notice, the whole project is pretty makeshift and fraught.
12: Here's this person who has memory loss, failing eyesight, a lifelong problem with hearing, and anxiety and worry.
2: Sometimes I think, well, we have this little house. If we squ- squeeze together, could we could could we be the ones to take him in for his last years? You know.
12: We thought. We need to get him connected with this geriatric clinic. But even now, when I sit in the clinic, talking to these practitioners who have been trained in all of this stuff about how someone's managing, it's like falling on deaf ears. Like Wolfgang is just not going to be washing his clothes every day. He's not going to change them every day. And he's not going to take a bath every day. And you tell that to somebody in in the clinic, and they look at you like you're crazy.
11: Well, when you spend time with Wolfgang, like... I mean, he enjoys it, but he's always trying to get us to stay a little longer and a little longer and a little longer.
4: I'm on the shopping schedule now. I guess that means I've joined the Wolf Pack, at least a little. A couple times a month, I bring over a few groceries to Wolfgang's small apartment and subsidize senior housing. His little arms always fly up with an enthusiastic welcome. We might talk for a bit about one of Wolfgang's philosophical interests. But inevitably, the conversation slides into his worries about his forgetfulness, his medications, and his doctor's appointments. One day, Wolfgang wants to play me his favorite piece of music, Beethoven Sonata, Opus 109. He holds his hearing aid box right up to the little speaker on the CD player his friends got for him, and we sit and listen. The year I was sick, I think most of what I did was listen. I was in bed, on my stomach, because weirdly it just took too much energy to lie on my back. I felt like I was disappearing, I was so thin. The sounds of voices in the house, down the stairs or through the walls, felt like a tether holding me in my life. My husband on the phone sharing my medical update. My son playing with his fire trucks.
12: Blow out your candles, Wolfgang!
13: Woo! Very good! Oh, (laughs) do you have a
11: little?
12: I don't know how many years ago I started giving him a hug. I just felt like he needed to be touched.
2: Right before we're about ready to go, Nan will come right up to him and bend down because he's short.
12: She kind of like leans in and scoops him up.
2: But then when she stands upright, he's probably six inches off the ground.
12: I mean, I'm not a tall person, but he's so light. You know, Wolfgang is airborne for maybe a good minute.
2: The first time she did it, I thought, what are you doing. You're going to hurt the guy.
12: When I hug you, Wolfgang, and lift you up off the ground. Yeah. She's asking about when I give you a big well,
11: hug. It's very relaxing.
12: Do you have a name for it? Like,
11: hey. Transfer of the vital energy.
12: I think that's it. It is. It's like a a hearty transfer of energy. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Ah.
4: There is some kind of transfer between caregiver, care receiver, and back again, and it does lift us up, and maybe that's why I'm watching this all so closely. But there's a heaviness that we pass back and forth, too. It's hard, all this caring and being cared for. Tara and Nan are on the phone for hours each week, trying to arrange doctor's appointments and rides, spelling it all out for Wolfgang. But then Wolfgang forgets and starts calling doctors out of worry, and things fall apart. The last season in the garden.
12: Then we can make two rows.
4: Tara and Wolfgang are leaning over his garden bed to plant.
12: Okay, here goes lettuce.
4: But then.
11: Who's taking this to the doctor? I think have to take a taxi. And- uh, well,
12: Wolfgang, you shouldn't go to the doctor by yourself. Huh? I thought I was taking you, yeah, but now everything it. got changed. Yeah. Everything got changed around. I don't even know when your appointments are. Yeah. It's easier if Nan or me take yeah. you to the doctor ourselves rather than you getting all confused with your appointments and rides. Yeah. That's worse for us. Yeah. That, that, that is what causes us to feel stressed out.
11: Yeah, no, no, Not I, taking it. Like but, really so but we to don't me, mind. I think you like,
12: like, uh, Wolfgang, let's not talk about this anymore. Uh,
11: nah,
12: uh. <laughs> I so can't.
4: gang takes a fall outside his apartment. There are no very good answers.
12: None of us here know if he's even gonna be able to walk after this.
5: What's that?
2: I'm just trying to get a sense of how much we need to be there.
12: I'm saying that I've been there a lot and therefore I'm feeling
5: guilty when I'm not and he's in pain because no one was there to say please do something different
4: the pond outside of hospice is so sweet to look at that you almost don't notice the generator groaning from the parking lot. The fresh air is a relief from all the worry and from Wolfgang's bouts of delusion and agitation. Wolfgang is slumped and bundled up in his wheeling walker seat.
12: Yeah. Wolfgang, mm-hmm. did you see the kind of flowers I put in your lapel?
11: I, I got some really flowers.
12: Did you,
11: what did he just
12: say? He said, Oh, I have so many lady friends now.
4: Around the bend, there's a nice patch of sun.
12: Wolfgang. Just lift your feet up. I'm gonna move you so you're in the sun. So just lift your feet up and I'm gonna roll you.
13: Oh, <laughs> oh man.
12: yeah. Man. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Go that way. Oh, this is better in the sun. Oh, this
12: is awesome. Does
4: that feel good? Each day, Wolfgang drifts farther and farther away. His eyes are closed his face is sunken Lenny and Nan hold Wolfgang's small hands into the early morning they sing to him from an old Cat Stevens record right up until
2: at the last note of that song he has that last breath Nan and I when I mean, we just looked at each other and just thought wow he he just he just did that he just died he just I suppose tears were coming for us, us both. And then it was just kind of like one of us looked up and said, well, I suppose we should get the nurse.
4: The group gathers around Wolfgang's body to say goodbye and place a couple things in his pockets. An acorn, a small bar of milk chocolate. I choose to go and sit by Wolfgang's garden bed instead. I sit for hours by myself, listening. After Wolfgang's memorial service and potluck, Nan gives everyone in his circle a pouch with some of Wolfgang's ashes. It's a small green tissue paper pouch. Tied with a little twine and a tiny copy of one of Wolfgang's ink drawings of a forest. The pouch is surprisingly heavy, like a soft, dense plum. Wolfgang liked to say, There's no objectivity, only relationships. That's what he told me right after we first met, when I found him in the library with an encyclopedia open to the entry on gravitation. And maybe there's some truth there. I planned to be an observer when I started this piece. This pouch of ashes though, it's dizzyingly intimate. What do you do with something like this?
12: Veering that way won't help us. Yeah, okay.
4: And so Tara and I set out on three different expeditions. We get lost, we get cold, we turn around? and we get wet.
12: Well shucks. Yeah, I don't think this is it. Doesn't
4: seem like it. It doesn't no. seem very beachy over no. here. And we're about to give
3: up. Oh shit. <gasps> <laughs>
12: Is that it? Oh my god, I just cussed into the microphone. Oh my god! You can't be serious. It's right here. Stephanie! It's right here. This is an amazing beach. It's amazing. It's amazing.
4: It is a beautiful tree.
12: Sorry, I cussed.
4: Smooth, soft gray bark. Just like Wolfgang said. Yeah, look at
12: it. It's, like, fleshy. It's nice to pack. And it's right by the expressway.
4: The magical branches Wolfgang talked about, it's just one skinny branch. But that branch does what Wolfgang described. It pulls back down toward the ground and also up. Would I have even noticed the tree if we hadn't been trying to find it?
12: Well, Steph, you know what's funny? It's like waiting to receive him. That's what it feels like right now. It's just been waiting.
4: (laughs) There are nooks and hollows in the tree. I feel like down in here. Oh, here's a nice little. Oh, that's really nice. And we open the pouch. Release him into the tree.
1: That was Gravitation and Other Graces. By Stephanie Rowden, with original music composed by Andrew Bishop. This is its broadcast debut. Stephanie is on the faculty of the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan and is co-founder of the Radio Campfire Listening Series in Ann Arbor and Detroit. To read a Q&A with Stephanie about the making of this story, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.